Right, we are in the letter of Jude. If you would turn, it's just before Revelation, uh, the letter before Revelation. We started with, this is the final of four sermons on these smallest books of the New Testament. We started with Philemon, then 2nd and 3rd John, and now Jude. Uh, Jude writes to urge us to contend or to fight for the faith. And so strange it might seem, especially in our world, we're to be contentious Christians, not necessarily always contagious Christians, uh, contentious, uh, that being, if we understand the word contentious rightly. And so um, we should approach hearing God's word because God has much to teach us, doesn't it? Doesn't he? You thought of yourself as a contentious Christian lately? Um, and so God is here to teach us. Let me read uh, these verses and pray, and then a little bit of background on Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Note that. That's a big thing in Jude. He's keeping, God's keeping us, and we're kept for Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and the sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by also showing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner... These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, He said, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the phone of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them, against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passion. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is a fire. It's like a hammer. It shatters and rebuilds. We ask now that you would give us grace to attend to your word, to be diligent, that we might contend for it. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter was written by Jude. Uh, we note here, he says he's a slave of Christ and brother to James. James is the biological brother of Jesus, and so Jude is biologically related to Jesus. And so this is Jude, Jesus's biological brother, same mother, Mary. Um, Jude piles up references, as you heard me read, especially beginning in um, verse 5 to Old Testament references, examples, that is. And so Jude is likely writing to Jewish converts who are having a tough time following Christ because of other wicked, false teachers who are trying to pervert the grace of God. And so Jude says he'd rather be writing about our common salvation, but found it necessary to write to contend for the faith. Um, and, and so he is urging Christians to contend for the truth, but he's not just urging us to do so, he shows us how. This entire letter is an example of how we might contend for the faith. So Jude shows us how to contend how to fight those within our own ranks who are turning on our, um, on our Lord. Now, at the heart of our contention for the faith is a reminder of God's sovereign keeping of us. He says that in the beginning, um, that we are kept for Christ, and at the very end, God is keeping us from stumbling. And so, as we're in the ring fighting for the truth of God's word, we have God who is keeping us. And so Jude closes his letter with what is one of the most beloved, uh, awesome, moving doxologies in all of Scripture. Uh, our world, if you're paying a bit of attention, is currently littered like um, fall leaves on our lawns with bad news. It's a barrage. It's unending. And so it's good that Jude starts with such a good reminder of who we are. As I said, Jude is a biological brother of Jesus, but Jude doesn't tell us that. He instead tells us that he's a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, have you been, ever been around a name dropper before? Right. Right. Somebody who gets their identity and wants you to think a lot about him or her because of 
who he or she knows. <clears throat> Jude, though, he could say, I am Jesus' blood brother, right? He could boast in this, but he doesn't. Instead, he boasts that he's a mere slave of Jesus Christ. And so the thing that is true most of you and I is that we belong to Jesus Christ. In our world, we are being fractured um, into various groups. You're a Republican or you're a Democrat. Right? You're male or female. You're rich or poor. You're whatever. And transcending all of those for Christians is the reality that you and I are Christ's. There is nothing so important in our lives as Jesus Christ, and it would be better to boast that we're his slave than that we're his biological brother. Isn't that precious? So do you boast like that in Christ? Is this the center of who you are? It was in the news the last couple of weeks of a teacher in Arizona who was recently removed from her position. She was an art teacher. Uh, A transgender student came to her wanting to do an art project on, I don't know if it's a he or a she, um, on his or her journey, her transgender journey. Teacher's a Christian, and she refused to let the student do the project. Student went to the administration. The administration forced the teacher to allow the student to do the art project, so the student did it, and the teacher gave her a zero, gave the student a zero. Um, teacher was fired. Teacher also brought Bibles in the classroom and was open and honest about her faith in Jesus Christ. This woman is a great example of a contentious Christian. This woman serves as an example of how to contend for the faith. She knew the cost. She knew it would happen. She handled herself very godly, calmly. So what comes to mind when you hear the word contend? Makes me think of boxing. Contending for the title might make you think of arguing. We speak up vigorously for what is correct. The term that Jude uses here, contend, is a strong term. It's a combative term. If you have children in your home, they're often contending. And typically what they contend for isn't worth the contention. But uh, it's a good uh, picture. This woman, this teacher in Arizona, contended for the faith. She fought. We're to be like this. Jude appeals to us. You hear that? He doesn't request. He doesn't ask if we have the time, he appeals. He appeals for believers to contend for the faith. Cannot help but be reminded of when Jesus says that if we're ashamed of his words, he'll be ashamed of us in his coming. But maybe if we contend for the faith, he'll be glad for us. This term, the the faith, or this phrase, it says in verse 3, to contend for the faith, the faith, that 
is a strange way to put it. We don't hear the term faith with the in front of it. We hear about faith in Jesus Christ, but not the faith. And so Jude isn't here mainly talking about our faith in Jesus. The phrase, the faith, is a shorthand way to refer to the sum of Christian teaching. To Scripture. Jude defines the faith as that which was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? So he is here talking about the sum total of that which we confess to be true because God has determined to write it through his prophets and apostles by his spirit and deliver it to us, his people, the church. Okay, so the faith that we're to contend for is the truth of Scripture, doctrine. If you were to read a, a book about church history, you would be reading a history of God's people contending for this faith. How many of you heard of the Apostles' Creed? Nicene Creed, right? How about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Heidelberg Catechism. All of these were written in response to significant errors within the Christian church. It was God's people coming together to state very clearly and unequivocally what we believe against that which would undermine it. The history of God's people is the history of us contending for this faith. So just think about these words here. Once for all delivered to the saints. Here we have a simple phrase describing for us what God's word is. It was delivered once. It's complete. It's final. It's full. There's nothing to be added to it nor nothing taken from it. All false religions, all cults begin with an individual receiving further revelation from God, be it Joseph Smith or Muhammad. But we as God's people know that this canon, this rule is closed, it's finished, it's complete, it's full, and yet it's not a dead letter. It's delivered once for all. For all Christians, over all times and all places, God's word is living and active. It's alive. This is what we confess about God's word. And who has he given it to? Who has he delivered it to? Who are we? We're his saints. This is a word that we as Christians are often embarrassed maybe to use about ourselves. Seems a bit pretentious. You look at your life and you know that you're not a saint. This is why we have to believe what God says about us more than what we say about us. We're saints. We're saints because Christ's blood has removed all of our sin. His righteousness is now our record. And his Father is now ours. We are his saints. And he has delivered to his saints his eternal, unfailing word. And what are we to do with it? Contend. We're to contend for it. We're to fight those who would say false things about it. We're to argue. You know what? The, the ironic thing is, 
Too often we fight against the truth of God's word rather than for it, don't we? We don't like what it says. We don't like what the preacher preaches. So we'll fight the preacher. We'll fight the word, but we won't fight for it. We as Christians are great at fighting against the truth written in God's word rather than for it. And Jude writes to appeal that we would fight for the faith. After appealing for us to contend for the faith in verses 4 all the way down to verse 19, Jude spills quite a bit of ink showing us the trouble that he is contending against. He has quite a bit to say about these wicked people. The first thing to notice is that Jude is not fighting those outside the church, but those inside the church. They have, as we read in verse 4, crept in. Or in verse 18, the apostles predicted that they would come in following their own ungodly passions, causing divisions within the church. This is why um, James says that judgment must begin within the household of God. This is why Jesus tells the church to first worry about the plank in its own eye before it goes around picking the specks out of the eyes of the world. And so the trouble here is within. This is a good time, if I could remind you, of what the main work of elders is. If you could keep your finger here and turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 20, beginning at verse 26. What, what do you think the elders calling is in the church. Many times I think we see them as uh, like a board of directors. They just kind of oversee administrative, organizational processes kind of stuff. They make decisions in a meeting. This is not what elders are for in the church. Uh, Paul writes, beginning at verse 26 of Acts 20, Therefore I testify to you all this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. He's speaking here to elders. I do not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul contended for the faith. Now he's exhorting elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The counsel here is declaring the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourself, elders, that you're doing the same, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, all right? So the elders have made, been made overseers by God's Spirit. What for? To care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Why this exhortation? Why this heightened language? I know, verse 29, that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among your own selves, from other church members, 
will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, elders, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. This is what the elders are for here. Presbyterians call their gathering of elders a session. This is law language. This is legal language. They sit in judgment. They gather to judge a church. You might remember in the Old Testament, where are the elders always spoken of? What's their location? They're at the city gate. What for? Well, they protect the city from anyone who would want to come in and cause them harm. They remove out anyone within who is causing them harm. They're guardsmen. They're judges. This is what Jude is doing. This is the elder's job. We're not administrators. We're not organizers. Our job is to make judgments about those in the church and make sure that the church is protected from harm. This is what we're for. This is what Jude is doing. Now, Jude goes into quite a bit of detail, citing several examples from the Old Testament that both explain the kind of trouble he has in mind and warn us of God's judgment on them. So these examples are both explanatory and a warning. And they all have to do with how he uh, introduces it in verse 4. That, that these ungodly people, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and so deny our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Every example that he piles up afterwards Israel coming out of Egypt, the angels in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on, are all explaining that this false teacher is closely linked to the desire for sexual immorality. You see this throughout Scripture. You have Israel worshiping false idols and celebrating it with a lewd, sexually immoral feast. You have angels likely referencing Genesis 6 who leave their position of authority in order to enter into crazy, wicked sexual morality with people. You have Sodom and Gomorrah, who indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desires. So the, the issue here that Jude is contending for in the faith is twisting Scripture for the sake of practicing sexual morality. It's really no different in our day, isn't it? The great sin of our culture is the great sin of every culture. It's sexual immorality. It's, it's a central temptation for God's people. It is where you and I are tempted. And so, because this is so serious, I want to urge you to see how serious this sin is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes that those who practice sexual immorality, homosexuality, are effeminate or butch, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul just leaves it there. He, he doesn't nuance it. 
He doesn't explain it. He just urges God's people, warning us that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds, but such were some of you. But you've been cleansed, washed. They pervert the grace of God for the sake of sensuality. That is, they use grace to permit their sin. Don't we do that? Don't we say, in our heart of hearts, not out loud, and I, I can go on sinning because God is gracious. I can go on looking at pornography. God is gracious. I can go on walking around lusting because God is gracious. He forgives. I can go on in adultery. God is gracious. He forgives. I can go on lusting after somebody of the same sex. I can go on in my homosexuality. God is gracious. This is called a perversion of grace. God's grace not only forgives our sins, it cleanses us from sin. It not only removes the guilt and stain of our sin, it frees us, breaking the power of sin over us. Grace in the scriptures is never an excuse for sin. It's always a power to free us from it. This is what Jude appeals us to contend against. We excuse our sin with the grace that is meant to free us from it. This is really lacking in any gratitude for the gospel, isn't it? Would we use that which God has given to free us from that which we hate so much as an excuse for it? Would we do that, brothers and sisters? Do you not see what happened to those Israelites who worshipped the idol and involved themselves in sexual immorality? Men strapped swords to the side and ran them through in judgment. Do not see what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not see what happened to Korah and his rebellion. These are meant as warnings for us as God's people to flee sexual morality, to hate it, to despise our sin and turn to God's grace that might be freed from it. Jude, after speaking so savagely against those who pervert God's grace, turns back in verse 20 to the beloved. Verses 20 to 25 are now aimed back at the saints, God's beloved. Please don't miss that word, beloved. After speaking so hard with so many terrifying warnings, but you, beloved. But you, beloved. What do we do with this? What do we do with this hard teaching? What do we do with these warnings of judgment? Well, Jude says two things. Take, take care of yourself and then take care of others. You know, if you've been on a flight, the stewardess tells you if we run into trouble and the oxygen mask drop, first put it on your own face and then on others. Jude's doing something similar here. 
But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. And then in verse 30, and then have mercy on those who doubt. So first, take care of yourself. First, build yourself up. Second, have mercy on others. Take responsibility for yourself, and then take responsibility for your brothers and sisters around you. Jude gives four statements about how to build yourself up in the holy faith. He says, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy. So the last is the most important. The third is the focus, and the first two are how you do it. We are waiting for one thing as Christians, aren't we? There is one thing we want more than anything else. It's Christ coming. This is our hope in this life. This is what we want above all else, to see Jesus. That's it. What do we do while we're doing that? We keep ourselves in the love of God. If you're waiting for God's love to appear, you do everything you do to keep yourself in it right now. How? We pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And that praying is how we build ourselves up in this most holy faith. Building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying the Holy Spirit are almost synonymous. You can't have one without the other. If you are intent on being built up in this most holy faith, you will be praying. And that is what keeps you in the love of God because you're waiting for it to appear. This is what we want. And so there's a diligence here. There's an urgency here. It requires effort. It requires work. It requires planning. We don't want to be prepared or found unprepared at Christ's coming. No elder, no pastor wants you being found without preparation for Jesus' return. This is why we do what we do here on Sunday morning. This is why we do what we do in our neighborhood small groups or Pine Grove Wednesdays or in our one-to-one counseling and shepherding. It's preparing you to meet Jesus urging you, appealing with you. Then, after taking care for yourselves, we turn to others. And Jude teaches us three ways that we might interact with different people, each which require wisdom to know which one to use. There are some who are just doubting. We just need to have mercy on them. We need patience and tenderness and kindness and forbearance. They have sincere doubts. They're wrestling. And so we just have all kinds of mercy and patience and kindness. Others, though, we got to rush in and grab them out of the fire because they're in real imminent danger. They are very close to pitching their faith. And they're going to feel roughly handled by you. They're going to wonder why you were so aggressive but because you saw they were right on the edge of the cliff. They were right there. When a bus is bearing down on your child, you don't speak nicely. And then the third time, he says, show mercy with fear. What's going on here is there are some times when you're involved with people who are struck or in sin, and you could be tempted in the same way. So you take great caution as you show mercy to them, guarding your own self. So 
So it takes wisdom to know what you want to do. But the thing here is, we take responsibility for ourselves and for others. And we're going to have to use judgment in here. We're going to have to make judgments. If we're going to contend for the faith, if we're going to build ourselves up, if we're going to help others, you're going to have to make judgments and you're going to have to take action. We need each other for this, don't we? We need you to take responsibility for yourself in Christ. And we need you to take responsibility for each other. How Jude closes this letter is incredible. He tells us, he he, he ends with a song. He ends with a doxology now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, this might raise a question in your mind. Here in verse 24, God is keeping us from stumbling. God is the one able to present us before his presence. But just before this, in verse 21, Jude tells us to keep yourself in God's love. So verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Verse 24, God is able to keep you. Which is it? Which is it? This is not an either or. It's a both and. God is ultimately sovereign over your keeping. And God's sovereignty includes how he accomplishes it. And the how is verses 21 to 23. I think too many times we consider God's sovereign care over us as if it's just like him doing it directly for us without any other people in between. But God's keeping includes your activity for yourself and your activity for each other. God is able to keep you from stumbling. You want to ask, how? What does it look like? Well, it looks like you praying. It looks like you building yourself up, doing the activities to build yourself up. It looks like you having mercy on those who doubt. It looks like you saving others by snatching them to the fire. It looks like you showing mercy to others with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. God uses people to accomplish his sovereign purposes and work. God uses you. God uses you and I. But in saying that, I don't want you to just simply sit back, lay down on this most cushiony couch of God's sovereign keeping of you for eternity. I just want you to believe these verses, these last two verses, that's it. If you leave with one thing this morning, leave with verses 24 and 25 and just giving yourself to them. You could read this and say, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, and you could go, was that me? Is he talking about me here? And I just want to say, just be quiet. Just, Just stop debating God's word, would you? Just listen to him. Just receive what he says and be grateful for it. Just believe him. Is God able to keep you from stumbling or not? Just believe him. Just receive this grace and say thank you. Just enjoy that your sovereign God keeps you from stumbling. 
He will keep you so well that he will present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy. You won't be grumbly on that day. You won't wish you had it better. You won't say, but God, I've been so miserable. You'll just be happy. His keeping will appear to you so precious and so good that you'll have nothing to say but, wow, he's doing it. He is doing it. And so to him, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be all glory and all majesty and all dominion and all authority before all time and now and forever. Please see the connection between verses 25 and 24. Why does God get all of the glory, all of the dominion, all of the majesty, all of the authority for all time in verse 25? Why does he get that glory? Because he keeps you until the end. His glory is tied to your eternal keeping. If he doesn't keep you forever, then he doesn't get the glory. And there is one thing in Scripture that he wants more than anything. It's glory, so he'll keep you. You understand this? He will not let you go because he wants to get the glory. He will not let you go because he wants to get the glory, and he will be glorified because you will be present before him with great joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us faith to simply believe this. Give us faith to believe that there are those within the church who will cause us great trouble in perverting your grace and essentiality. Give us faith and courage to contend for this faith, to do the work of building ourselves up in the most holy faith by praying, keeping ourselves in your love, waiting for the mercy of your Son's coming. Give us faith to have mercy on those who are doubting. But God, more than anything, give us faith to believe that you are the God who keeps us and will present us blameless before your presence of your glory with great joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.